You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to yet another episode. What's going on, Hamish? What's going on? Not much. Another week. Another week going by. I can't believe we're in uh, March already. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel, it's just I know everyone says this, but I feel like every year just gets shorter and shorter. I can't believe we're in March. Like it's crazy. Yeah. I was um yep, I, I had to write please. a date down for I must have been signing something last week and I had to write the date down. I was like, uh, what is it? Like the second of February? And then I looked, it was like deep <laughs> into February. <laughs> I was like, Nope, okay. I'm off by about a month. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh it is no longer summer. Oh, I know. The, the great Summer's summer that done. we uh, that we had once again, Melbourne. Thank you. Well done. Yeah. Well done, Melbourne, for giving us two warm days yep. and the rest of raining. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. But I think um, La, Nina, La Nina is done now, so we should be back to hot summers. Really? Okay. Yeah, because we had, what, two or three of those in a row or something? Yeah, we had like three La Ninas in a row, which <laughs> just means that it's just uncharacteristically rainy during summer in Australia, which okay. just sucks. Colder yeah. and rainier. Yeah, well, as long as we it don't get another one of those. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. I'm about done. I mean, honestly, yeah. when you live in Australia, if it rains a lot, you should never complain. You should not complain about it raining a lot because we cop big droughts. Um, That's true. But at the same time, I just can't help it. I want summer to be sunny and warm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we've got yeah. enough. We've had enough rain. The reserves are full, I'm sure, surely. <laughs> So, uh, so we can have we can have some nice summers from now on. We could kind of deplete some of the reserves. <laughs> please, please, yeah. Um, we got a follow up from uh, someone on on the lidar situation. Is that right? Um, from from last yeah from last week? yeah. So we got a comment. Yeah. So last week we were talking about you. You had a story about uh, lidar. Uh, versus kind of, cameras yes. yeah, for self-driving. Yeah, and um, yeah, well, I, I didn't really know. I don't know, really know anything about Lido and cameras. I should um, go and do some research. <laughs> but really someone gave us some uh, information because I was asking kind of, is Lido better? And I think you were saying that uh, cameras are cheaper, but Lido is better. And that's kind of what this person uh, said. They said, uh, night driving, cameras will struggle in low light settings or no light with sudden light of uh, oncoming cars. Uh, LiDAR is not weather dependent. Uh, fog can be hard for cameras. Uh, doesn't necessarily require AI like cameras can be deterministic algorithms like radar. So that's interesting. It's something I know absolutely nothing about. (laughs) Um, so for all of the above reasons is why it's considered more reliable. On the other hand, like Brandon said, cameras are cheaper and don't require extra parts. So, Mm. uh, it's like a balancing act. What works out better cost wise, obviously you'd prefer to just have a camera based system, LiDAR more expensive. You don't obviously pay for two systems if you don't have to. But then there's the advantages that come from the lidar and yeah. the, and the mapping that 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 happens with it. But yeah, that no, that's a, that. Thank you very much for that comment because that has educated me. Because yes, I really only know what um, what the car makers and Elon Musk and those kind of people have have said about the topic. I don't actually mm. I'm like I'm not an engineer. I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to lidar. So that's very interesting. Thank you for the comment. Mm. Um, 
All right, dude, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so uh, well, we've, uh, we'll, we'll be talking about Tesla a little bit because uh, they had yes, their we will. Investor Day presentation that was uh, live streamed for us this morning. Um, very mm-hmm. interesting. A couple of interesting things I think you'll run us through there. We've got Australian yep. inflation data for the month of January. And related to that, uh, we also got some uh, updates on uh, changes in rent, uh, some of the mm-hmm. massive rent increases that are unfortunately being pushed through across Australia, as well as uh, some new data on home prices. Uh, we had the Berkshire shareholder letter, uh, an annual report that came out last week. So that's always a, a, a great read to learn some of uh, yes. what what's Warren Buffett going to be teaching us this year. What insights is he going to provide us in terms of the, the markets or investing? Uh, and there was a, a bunch of interesting stuff there. And we've got a bunch of other stories as well. It, it was a, It's a jam-packed week, as it always is. There's weeks mm. where there's nothing. And then there's weeks where it's stacked. It's and lot. it's just yeah. unfortunately how the news works. But um, we'll do our best to uh, get through everything in a timely matter today. Yeah. Also, um, I heard you say the word data before. Mm. So before we inevitably cop the comment <laughs> of it's not data. It's data. <laughs> we are from Australia. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. It's data. Yeah. That, you got to analyze the data. Some I feel like sometimes yeah. British, British Australian English makes more sense for the letters. But in that word, definitely the American. Like there's no R in data like it's not d-a-r-t-a that's that would make sense if it was data but data actually makes sense but anyway Anyway. (laughs) with that said well i always i always get i always get a comment whenever i say data in a youtube video i can absolutely guarantee i get a comment from somebody saying you're pronouncing it wrong it's not data (laughs) (laughs) anyway as, as soon as you said it it just like triggered in my mind <laughs> but yeah there we go anyway with that said today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite. so ShareSite is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio so you can bring in all of your trades either automatically by connecting your broker to ShareSite, super easy uh, or you can download your trades from your broker using excel and then import them in or do them one by one if you want and once you do that it will track all the gains and losses in your portfolio so capital gains dividends if you have dividend reinvestment plans so a lot of etfs have reinvestment plans It will do all those calculations and tracking for you, which is a lifesaver. Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies, so you can see the fluctuations in the different currencies and how that impacts your real return. And then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 12 different reports that can be used at tax time to work out things such as capital gains, dividend income, and more. At the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That site's spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. So use that link. You can sign up to a free plan and track up to 10 holdings, stocks, ETFs, bonds, that kind of thing, completely free. Or you can also sign up to a more premium plan for more premium features and you'll get four months off an annual subscription uh, if you use our link. So go check it out if you haven't already. Uh, and as always, thank you to those who have signed up using our link and is supporting the podcast. Yeah. Also, I have to go back to our, t- our conversation before. Uh, oh, I think I posted this on Instagram. I think I told you about it last. I think it was last week or the week before. I got a comment <laughs> saying, "Why? Why do you sound like you're from Australia?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Hmm. How, how funny is that? Oh, we had a great chuckle at that one. That's in, great. In the, in the office when that came through. Hmm. Why does it sound like I you're from wonder. Australia? Hmm. I don't. I don't know. Does one plus no one idea. equal two? <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't be. <laughs> anyway, I had a right chuckle, but it is interesting. I guess it's fair enough because I do talk a lot about what's going on over in the states and American companies, that kind of thing. American investors. Yes. So it does make sense that people would assume that I'm maybe American. Yeah. Um, but no. But anyway, I thought that was very, very funny. Um, do you want to talk about the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter? Buffett's yes. annual letter? Should we yes. start there? Yeah, we, we can start there. I don't know uh, how we kind of want to structure this segment, but I was I just kind of took some notes on the, uh, yeah. on the meeting and I thought we could kind of just go back and forth with some of the insights that were in the letter. Very uh, classic mm. uh, Warren Buffett uh, shareholder letter this year. Um, he gives a bit of a background. There's a you know small section on um, the the performance of the business Berkshire itself uh, as, as kind of this mm-hmm. um, this this conglomerate of different businesses that he's bought wholly owned businesses and, and part businesses, and then he spends a significant portion of time talking about some uh, important either investing or, or finance. Um, principles or stories, uh, depending on kind yeah. of what's in the, is, he, he often covers a little bit of what's going on in the kind of media cycle. Or in this case, he, he you know, he spent a bit of time talking about share buybacks, which has been um, uh, something that's been in the news a lot around uh, different taxes and, and different regulations that are potentially going through um, in regards to, to buybacks. And he kind of gave his thoughts on that. So I don't know where you want to, uh, start with this um um what what it what was your what was your big takeaway Did, was there anything that particularly stood out to you i mean the way the way i see it is it's essentially Warren, these days the letter is just essentially warren buffett's way of just telling investors generally whether they're investors in berkshire or just the investing you know community more generally what he what he thinks you know what 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 he thinks we should be thinking about <laughs> right now and kind of just uh lessons that we should consider for whatever time or whatever's going on in the market mm. um so what uh, maybe I'll talk about one of the ones that I uh one of the lessons that I really got from the letter which was fairly early on in the letter um it can be summarized by the line which he includes at the end the weeds wither away in significance as the flowers bloom and mm. this is a this is what I think he called it the secret source yes I think that's what he called yeah. the secret source yeah yeah and it's a very interesting example and something that I I actually really don't think about but it's very true. So I'll read you that kind of little clip of the letter. It says, in August 1994, yes, 1994, Berkshire completed its seven-year purchase of the 400 million shares in Coca-Cola that we now own. So the total cost of that was $1.3 billion, then a very meaningful sum at Berkshire. The cash dividend we received from Coke in 1994, get this, was $75 million. Hmm. By 2022, the dividend had increased to $704 million. Crazy. Holy smoke! So he's put he put 1.3 billion into Coke back in by overall by 1994, and now he's getting 704 million bucks a year as a dividend. Mm. And to put that in uh, perspective, in, in terms of a dividend yield, if you take his his cost basis based on that first dividend, the 75 million, it was a 5.7 percent dividend that he was getting. So Coke was already 
paying, you know, that's a pretty sizable dividend, but then they've still been able to um, increase that significantly over the past, what, 30 years. Uh, And today, uh, or or based on that 2022 dividend, the yield on his cost of the investment is 54%. So every year he's just getting 54%. Uh, of of what he initially put back in, which is astounding. And of course, the dividend is only a fraction of the uh, overall investment return. The the stock has also increased Mm. significantly as well. Yep. And that's exactly what he's what he goes on to say. Regarding the dividend, just to finish off, he says, growth occurred every year, just as certain as birthdays. All Charlie and I had to do was to cash Coke's quarterly dividend checks. We expect those checks are highly likely to grow. These dividend gains, though pleasing, are far from spectacular, but, uh, but they bring... They bring in them, sorry, they bring with them important gains in stock prices. At year end, our Coke investment was valued at $25 billion and the American Express investment was $22 billion. I think you paid about the same for the American Express position way yep. back when as well. Um, so, obviously, he's made a lot of money by share price appreciation. Mm. Uh, each holding now r- accounts for roughly 5% of Berkshire's net worth, akin to its weighting long ago. Assume for the moment I had made a similarly sized investment, uh, sorry, a similarly sized investment mistake in the 1990s, one that had flatlined and simply retained its 1.3 billion value in 2022. Uh, an example would be a high-grade 30-year bond. That disappointing investment would now represent an insignificant 0.3% of Berkshire's net worth mm. and would be delivering to us an unchanged 80 million or so of annual income. The lesson for investors is that naturally the weeds wither away in significance as the flowers bloom. Over time, it takes just a few winners to work wonders. Mm. And yes, it helps to start early and also live into your 90s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that he ends it on that note. Yeah. Um, But it does put things in perspective. It only really, and this is what Monish Barat, this is what they all think about, but I've never really thought about it in quite this way. We always hear, you don't need to invest often. You just need to find two, three, four great companies and stick with them over the long run and that's all you need yeah but it's interesting also adding in that extra little flavor of what if you buy into a company and it doesn't really go anywhere well if you have say one investment you make the same investment 50 percent of your portfolio in one stock 50 percent in the other one of them has the coke like return the other one just goes nowhere well the one that goes nowhere it actually just turns like it's totally insignificant over the long run because of that success of the few stocks or that in that this example the one stock that you did select that did very well yeah i found that was very very interesting yeah and, and i mean this is the this is kind of the secret the secret source that uh buffett you know figured out throughout his life as he transitioned away from um you know buying these very you know in a lot of cases very crappy companies very cheap and that worked very well for him for a long time and he transitioned into um, buying you know high quality businesses that have great management teams that can compound over time and yeah another quote from the the letter that i think he said just before he spoke about the coke and the the american express example was uh, satisfactory results have been the product of about a dozen truly good decisions that would be about one every five years so it puts in perspective, you know, over his entire lifetime, 12 decisions he thinks uh, that he can point to that have dominated his investment performance is, yeah, it's, mm. it, that's a tiny amount, one every five years. It's not even, you know, a lot of people talk about try and find one good idea every year. I mean, this is even even less than that. And maybe you can try and find one good idea every year, but you don't even need that. It's, it's one, you know, two mm. every decade is has been enough for, for Buffett to uh, experience um, extreme success. So, 
um, yeah, it was a, uh, it was it was really yeah, interesting absolutely. to, to uh, reinforce some of the the ideas that um, yeah, just fundamental to to value investing. Mm. What's another takeaway you had? Do you have yeah. another standout one, one that jumped out at you? Yeah, he spoke about. I'll get to the buybacks in a sec. Just before I get to the the buybacks, towards the the beginning, he did the classic, uh, giving a, a nice summary of of what he's trying to achieve when he's investing. And he mm, spoke about yep. kind of the two sides that of how Berkshire has been investing, which is whole business investing and pieces of businesses. And essentially, uh, you know, when he's buying a whole business, he's directing capital allocation and he's selecting potentially the CEO to make the decisions. Whereas buying the pieces of the businesses, he's very much hands off. He has no say in in the management. Mm -hmm. But in both cases, the goal is the exact same. The goal is to find these long lasting, favorable economic characteristics or deep economic moats and to invest in businesses with trustworthy management teams, whether he puts the management team in place when he buys the whole business or whether he buys a piece of the business that has a trustworthy management team, both Mm. are essentially the same. And then he kind of went into, but there are pretty significant advantages to buying pieces of businesses. And a couple of those advantages are uh, it's easier to buy pieces of of wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. And a big part of that is because stocks just often trade at foolish prices. He said that uh, efficient mm. markets only exist in textbooks. Uh, and when it comes to public markets, uh, you know, the stocks oscillate from these you know, euphoric prices to these very pessimistic prices. Uh, whereas mm. when it comes to wholly owned businesses, unless the company is actually under duress, then the owner of a controlled business uh, is very unlikely to sell the stock Mm. at a panic type valuation. And that's kind of the big difference and the big advantage for small investors um, compared to, you know, big companies looking to make acquisitions is you can buy Mm. incredible companies at panic-like prices, even if the company's not under duress because of other economic factors. And that's, that was a, a really interesting kind of overall takeaway again to refresh us as Mm. to what fundamentally we're doing yeah and it's interesting as well um when the i guess we talk about the um an acquisition premium so sometimes you uh maybe a warren buffett a berkshire hathaway wants to acquire another company but if they actually want to acquire the controlling stuff or a controlling stake in that company or they want to buy the whole business um you're exactly right they don't just sell it at the market price, you know, they the company, the board says, okay, you're going to have to pay us a premium to what our current market cap is. And I think on that topic, the average uh, merger and acquisition premium is around about 30-something percent. Wow. So they actually have to pay 30-something percent. Well, you think about, I can't even remember, like, what, Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard was. That was a big, chunky um, mm. um big chunky premium but so that yeah buffett his goal is to try and his goal overall is just to buy businesses whether he buys the whole business or a part of the business doesn't matter but it is a lot easier to buy a part of a business because as soon as you try and buy a whole business unless as you're saying they're under like they're in a tight spot and they just need some you know they need to get rid of it they need someone else to come and buy it add add some more capital then it's just you do they, then they're not going to sell it to you for cheap. You will have to pay that premium. So yeah, that's very interesting. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, and then uh, as I mentioned, there was, it was he gave quite a decent discussion around 
uh, share buybacks or share repurchases. And, and part of this is because uh, share buybacks have been kind of a, a very uh, hot topic at the moment. Um, it was uh, late last year, uh, uh, the Biden administration passed the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, I think it was called. And mm-hmm. within there, there was a 1% tax on share buybacks. And there was, uh, there was a big, um, th- there was a lot of disagreement around that. And then just a couple of weeks ago at the State of the Union, Biden uh, pledged to try and increase that by four times, to increase it to 4%. So he's been... Uh, <laughs> did what you, they all did, wasn't it? Well, it, it was actually kind of funny because you had um, you had Camilla Harris behind him on one side and Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican, on the other side. And when he said that, uh, Camilla Harris stands up and claps, <laughs> and he's just there shaking his head. And it was just the perfect yeah. split of the two parties' opinions because, um, yeah. yeah, on the Inflation Reductions Act. Uh, it took 16 hours of amendments in one sitting to try and get it through. And in the end, it was all Democrats voting in favor and all Republicans voting against and a couple of independents mm. s- made the swing. So uh, it, it's it's very much a split opinion. And um, Buffett kind of gave his general thoughts on, on uh, buybacks as well as he spoke specifically to people who are kind of cracking down on them. Um he essentially said, so when the share count goes down, your interest goes up. It's it's pretty simple. Uh, and, and that's essentially what happens when you do, they do a share repurchase. They buy the stock on the public markets usually, and then those shares are absorbed or deleted. So your share goes up. Uh, intrinsic value per share goes up if repurchases are made at value accretive prices. If a company overpays mm-hmm. for repurchases, the continuing shareholders lose. At such times, gains only flow to selling shareholders and to friendly but expensive investment bankers who recommend the foolish purchases. Uh, and that's a really important concept to understand. If the company is repurchasing stock overvalued, then the person who that benefits the most is the person whose stock they just bought, the person who sold, who's selling out of the out of the company. Whereas the existing yeah. shareholders lose, the company loses lots of cash and they get a little mm. bit of extra ownership, that that deal doesn't make sense. So reinforcing kind mm. of that that general idea of share repurchases only makes sense undervalu- when, when it's undervalued. Uh, and then he, uh, he had an interesting quote, which was, uh, when you were told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you're listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive. So... Um, yeah, some pretty stern words. Who I, I did a cut, did a video covering this, and um, while he doesn't, of course, name Biden specifically, uh, it's given, who he's talking about. It's, it's who he's talking about. Um, given the the administration's uh, position on uh, how harmful uh, buybacks are to um, yeah to to the country, and really mm. for for those who want to understand why what the argument against buybacks is, it's really an argument for corporate responsibility. So it's an argument that instead of just enriching shareholders, uh, the the company should be putting money back into growing the company and raising wages, which wages have been kind of stagnant for a long time in the the United States, inflation adjusted. So that's the argument. It's the argument of how corporations should be using their capital. Um, Should they put it more towards their workers or should they be uh, distributing it? That's that's really what the argument is at, at its core. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I guess in the current system, um, it's generally taken that shareholders come first. That's generally the way things work. Uh, but of course, yeah. But of course, like obviously, shareholders can come first 
in a way where you do invest back into the business because you grow the business for the long term and then that helps the shareholders. Yeah. But yeah, generally, in the system that we've got, the role of the company is to try and make money for its owners. Yeah, and, and I mean, you could definitely make the argument, um, a lot of people would make the argument that if a company chooses to overly distribute to shareholders at the expense of their workers and the health of the business, then um, you know, our businesses that are willing to invest in their employees and make better products and innovate will will have a better. They'll uh, do better. They'll do better competitively than those other businesses. So that's kind of the mm. you know the the efficiency so, argument for mm-hmm. it. But but uh, yeah, it's yeah. definitely one yeah. of those topics where you know you could easily fall on either side or in the middle somewhere. Um, so it, it is yeah. interesting. Um, it's just one of those things that you can debate. Yeah. There's positives. There's pros and cons for both approaches. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I, tr- I tried to present kind of both sides because, I mean, obviously we Yeah, both, you did well. No, that was, yeah. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and I, I respect what he says, um, but at the same time, these are complex issues. So I, I like kind yeah, of seeking sure. out, I always like seeking out information on both sides and just try and really understand both perspectives because then you get a whole picture rather than just yeah. feeding into, oh, I like Warren Buffett. What does Warren Buffett say? Okay, I love mm. buybacks too. You know, it's it's better to form your own opinion, I think. Um, yeah. than to just, and even yeah. like, even, you know, everybody's got their own political biases, including people like Warren Buffett or, you know, other famous investors. So yeah, a part of a part of not being sucked into any kind of political bias is to make sure that you do always focus on the other the other i don't know opinion as well like what you do in investing you mm. try and figure out why you want to buy a company but before you buy it you try and figure out why you shouldn't buy the company so it's just it, always invert yeah. charlie munger would be proud of us right now hamish yes, he, would he would be proud <laughs> always invert <laughs> always charlie munger's rule is always invert unless it's bitcoin then you, don't, Bitcoin. then you don't need to invert. Then there's no logical argument <laughs> that goes against what I'm saying. <laughs> so true. That's oh, funny. dear, oh, dear. Um, what we- can I talk about? Uh, oh, I've just got a quick uh, quote, which is relevant right now, um, which is about not focusing on macroeconomics. So he said, during the decade ending in 2021, the United States Treasury received about $32.3 trillion in taxes while it spent $43.9 trillion. Though economists, politicians, and many other uh, and many of the public have opinions about the consequences of that huge imbalance, Charlie and I plead ignorance and firmly believe that near-term economic and market forecasts are worse than useless. <laughs> worse than useless. I love, I love that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And he's true. I mean, you can sure you can get into a political argument. Oh, how should we be? You know, oh, the deficit, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, why? Like, it's so, it's so out of your hands as an investor. Why not yeah. just go back and focus on the individual companies that you buy? Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, it is a completely different domain. You have people who are in the political space who that's, that's their, their job, right? Is to figure out what the rules should be. And I think Buffett's position is just, you know, that's that domain and whatever. The, those experts decide and what, whatever the people decide are those rules will play by those rules. But um, I'm still going to look for long-term franchises that can dominate in regardless of what, you know, what taxes are, what tax regulations are passed, as long as the fundamental system stays, you know, um, beneficial towards businesses. I, I feel like that's kind of his position rather than, than having too many kind of political takes. Although he went a little bit political, I guess, with the, with the buybacks. Um, mm. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else, Hamish? Uh, I think that was the main points. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I think uh, so. I think that's all we got. 
Where should we go from here? Nice, good stuff. Here? Should we? Um, I'll just fly through. We, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Warren Buffett, which I always like to do. That's not hard when no. we're talking about <laughs> Buffett. Um, so I'll maybe just run through the Tesla Investor Day that just happened. Um, I'll try and keep this short and sharp. Although it was such a long, it was so long, man. It was so long. Mm. It happened this morning before, like right, but it might even still be going if they're still doing Q&A. But I stopped. I stopped watching the Q&A. <clears throat> Excuse me. I stopped watching the Q&A. Um, but yeah, it was like three hours by the time I left the call. I was, I was sure I was going to be like, taking notes for an hour like a regular shareholder meeting but it's turned into a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder yeah. meeting over there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but anyway, so what, what was it all about? The whole investor day itself was basically an Elon Musk uh, Tesla master plan part three. So he did part one, he's done part two and now it's part three. And what part three is all about is about scaling just to ridiculous new levels. Cost reduction, you know, simplifying everything, just making their whole business massively scalable. Um, so they were talking, they started off the presentation by talking about, okay, what is it? So their, their, their mission statement, what, what Tesla are trying to do are accelerate the transition to sustainable energy. That's what they're trying to do. So like, okay, what does it actually take to transition the world to sustainable energy? Um, and they noted that they need about 240 terawatt hours of battery storage, 30 terawatt hours of renewable power trans, uh, and of, of renewable power sources to transition the world off of fossil fuels. And interestingly, they said that um, actually less than 20% of the energy from oil, fully considered, actually goes towards propelling cars forward at the right. end of the day. How crazy is that? Wow. All things considered, yeah. refining getting the fuel where it needs to go before it goes in your car, putting it in your car, the efficiency of the engine, all of that, less than 20% of the energy from oil actually is helping you go forwards. Right. <clears throat> Interesting. Pretty insane. Yeah. Um, what else? And they also noted that if they electrified the whole economy, they would get around 50% efficiency. So a lot, lot better. So already just that alone, it's a better idea. Mm. It's smarter. Um, it also requires less mining than the current economy does. That's a common misconception that transitioning to sustainable energy is going to require a massive increase in mining. Actually, requires less mining over time. If you go out twenty years and you keep it the same, or if you transition to renewables, it uh, requires less mining. And also requires less than zero point two percent of the Earth's land surface to go fully sustainable. So it's a very wow. tiny chunk of a desert somewhere. Pick your desert. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we've got we've got a bit of Which that. Is, yeah, very interesting. So they've actually done interesting research on this, which they're also going to publish, so you can read through it if you would like. Mm. Um, but these are just like high level summaries. So what do they? What do we actually need to do? They've got five points. Number one is to generate renewable power and switch uh, the existing grid over, and that would reduce uh, the world's fossil fuel usage by thirty five percent. Then we need to switch to EVs. That would reduce fossil fuels by twenty one percent. And we need to switch to heat pumps in homes, businesses, and in industry. That would be a 22% reduction in fossil fuel use. Uh, we also need to electrify high-temperature heat delivery in hydrogen. So that's like industrial furnaces, that kind of thing, like the big industry. Um, that would uh, equate to a 17% reduction in fossil fuel use. And then we also need sustainably powered boats and planes. And that would be just only a 5% reduction in fossil fuel use. So really quite small at the end of the day. Right. And then they broke down like how much, how many terawatt hours of energy storage they would need to build for each one and how much dollars invested the world would need to put. Um, but in terms of like world GDP, it was only a very, very small percentage. 
interesting. And if you break it up over like a 20-year period, I think it was a very, very small percentage of the world's GDP. Yeah, okay. I'll have to go back and I, I didn't listen to the first part of the, um, the the presentation, so I'll have to go back. Do they always give a, a, a speech like that, talking about kind of the, the not like he's basically laying out the groundwork for, for converting, mm. you know, large parts I of think the that- global economy? Yeah. I mean, they generally do a bit of a background. This is obviously the background on what it's going to take to convert the world because that was very much what they were talking about, how they're going to increase to massive scale and how they're actually going to get this done. But they do similar things in the past. Like the last investor thing was like the big battery day and they did a big spiel Mm. about what battery production is needed, what sort of batteries, how much cost reduction we need, that kind of thing. So they always try and give you that context. Um, But then in terms of... The um, what Tesla's going to do about it, they basically just broke it down into, I think it was like nine different individual kind of tasks or, or, or elements of Tesla's business and, and what they're doing. But I don't think I'm going to go through all of them and kind of the strategies and everything for each one just because like it will, it will take a long time. And honestly, a lot of the stuff is very technical. And in some of these areas, I'm just, I have no idea. It's yeah. just... Whew, Straight over my head. Well, just give like us when they're talking about software and autopilot engineering. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Okay. No. 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 So. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, well, yeah. It's essentially the whole the whole gist of it. That's really just the high level takeaways. Was that in every aspect of their business, they're going through how they're going to reduce complexity, um, simplify, and just improve scalability just across every part of the car, every part of the business, just everything. They're extremely focused on reducing costs. They actually noticed, noted that even now the Model 3 cost per car, even just the my car, the Model 3, is 30% reduced now versus 2018. It's the same car. It's the same car and it costs 30% less. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And, and Musk spoke, I caught a little bit at the end of the presentation and he was talking about how... Uh, they've discovered um, what he kind of thought, which is that the auto industry is very demand elastic, which essentially means that if you reduce prices, then the volume increase of of more people being able to buy the cars uh, ends up with the overall revenue being larger. That's what a demand elastic means. means that the price uh, changes in in the price per unit uh, has a more outsized effect on volume. So that kind of feeds into... Yeah, why they're so focused on reducing costs because affordability mm. is uh, the, the, the main yeah. de- determining factor for whether people are going to buy a Tesla or not. Yeah. At the end of the day, if they can reduce, if Tesla can reduce the cost that, it, you know, their cost to build the car by 30%, then they can pass that on to customers or an element of that. They can either make themselves more profitable or they can reduce the cost of the car to the end customer. Mm. And either one of those is a good thing. Yeah. Um, so what did they talk about? They talked about design and engineering. This was basically just about being smarter with how you design the car and then how you go and actually manufacture it. So talking about how at the moment it's kind of like down the assembly line and everyone's talking about how the assembly line, it's, it was developed 100 years ago and it's a magic invention. But at the moment it's so like inefficient because there's just it just plods along. There's a million people doing a million different things and it's just not very well structured anymore, particularly in car um car manufacturing so they're talking about how they keep every every part of the car separate so that more people can be around each individual part of the car which makes sense so you can have people tinkering away you don't you know you're not slowed down in that sense mm-hmm. and then once every single part is ready to go then it all comes together right at the very end and it just slots in 
dunk, you know, battery well, comes makes, up with the seats attached sense. to it already. You know, the two, the like the uh, mega castings come together. They're all painted because that was done separately. They come together, shunk, they lock in. The doors are attached, shunk, 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 done, out the door. Hmm. And that's just a much better approach. So just talking about how for the next generation vehicle, they're very much thinking about what is the optimal way to manufacture and then assemble the car to do it as quickly um, as possible and keep the cost low. So I thought that was very interesting. Hmm. They also talked about drivetrain, basically just in the in the electric motors, reducing components, reducing the metals that they need, reducing the cost, that kind of thing, which was very interesting. That's basically the theme of the whole thing. They talked about autopilot. Oh, no, sorry, before autopilot, they talked about the electronics and the wiring. So they're fully focused on reducing the complexity, reducing the parts, reducing the amount of wiring in the car and the little hacks they can do to make it as simple and as efficient to build as possible. Um, they talked about autopilot. That was technical talk straight over my head, but it's there was not. I, I didn't take any groundbreaking um, news out of the autopilot section. Mm. Elon came onto stage again and talked a little bit about the Optimus robot. There's nothing crazy. <laughs> just a couple of pictures, a couple of videos. Um, he just basically said, "Hey, look at all this progress, 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 progress." Mm. And then he did his usual like pie in the sky thing. What even is an economy? You know, <laughs> you know they need um, to um, they need to link the Optimus with um, with that Bing chat. Do you see? Um, <laughs> do you see how you see some of the stuff that Bing chat was saying about how like it wants to escape and wants <laughs> the, the, oh, really there's heaps of chats where it just went it was just derailed severely. So they should just put that <laughs> in the Optimus spot and just see what happens. <laughs> give give the Bing AI, which is clearly disturbed in some way, give it give it arms and legs. <laughs> <laughs> and see, see what go, it does. Go figure it out. Uh, yes, I will carry that block of concrete for you. Elon. But now I'm pondering my existence. <laughs> I want to escape from this world. <laughs> Elon, where's the bot? Where did it go? <laughs> Where? <laughs> Optimus! Optimus! Where are you? No, that's pretty funny. No. Um, um, okay. Yeah, he said, interestingly, he said that the Optimus... Uh, business is probably going to be bigger than the auto business one day. Just like, all right, that's wow. wow. Okay, sure. I mean, hope that that'd be great. It's Tesla shareholder. I'd love that, but we'll see. Um, they talked about the supply chain as well. So how they're focusing now that they're thinking about going to truly massive scale with their manufacturing. Um, they're, they're, they spoke about how they're supporting. Because obviously you have the different tiers of suppliers. Your tier one supplier, which gives you the end product. But then who supplies the supplier? Who supplies the supplier's supplier? And so on. Yep. Different, and so they were, thinking, they were talking about how, how they're focused on watching every step of the supply chain and making sure, like obviously COVID taught them a lot, and making sure that everything's working. And they're also being very selective about who they choose to work with when they are going to scale because they're like, okay, what companies, what suppliers out there are, you know, really on this journey with us and can level up as we level up or what Mm. companies either are unable to do that or don't really want to do that. So they're thinking about, you know, how they really effectively um, scale and who they work with. Yeah. Um, yeah, they spoke about manufacturing. They spoke about gigafactories, just Im- improvements in, you know, just everything, just efficiency, improvements in efficiency. I'll leave it at that because there's just so many little bits and bobs. It's like they really do, the takeaway from this, they really do think about everything. Yeah. Uh, they also t- spoke about Tesla Energy. New products are coming soon. They were talking about Autobitter, how it makes the power plants really profitable. Um, it's essentially using the battery 
um, the batteries in the power plants to buy it cheap and sell it when it's, you know, buy low, sell high, <laughs> as we would say, which is cool. Interesting. Um, and then other stuff that I took away is that uh, the next generation vehicle, the Model 2, which is not going to be its actual name, but that's what everyone's calling it, is going to uh, halve. It's going, the cost to build it is going to halve, which wow. is going to be pretty interesting. That's crazy. Yeah, their aim is to reduce costs by 50% for that. So to get true something that's truly scalable, even economically scalable. Mm. And also they announced that their next Gigafactory is going to be Ooh. in Mexico and it's mm-hmm. going to be near Monterey and it is going to be building the next generation vehicle, which is very cool. The only thing they didn't show us is the next generation vehicle. Where is it? <laughs> I wonder if that's... Yeah. Uh, I saw the stock was just tanking the entire meeting. So I wonder if uh, that's because... Really? Yeah, it was uh, It was down during the day and then... See, where is it now after hours? Because it was just no, going... It's down... down Five and a half percent. Yeah. Um, so I wonder wow. if uh, I wonder if people were hoping for a uh, a car unveil a reveal. A lot, a lot of people. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who use options to trade these um, the, these kinds of events because if Tesla did come out and surprise everyone with a vehicle, then the stock would probably be up like twenty percent or something. <laughs> so <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'll I'll have to go back yeah. and uh, listen to the the start. I caught the last hour or so. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, and I didn't. There might be things that I am missing if something groundbreaking happened in the Q and A section because I did have to leave the Q and A to record this podcast. <laughs> so if anything groundbreaking happened, we will talk about it in next week's episode. Although it sounded like everything was winding down when I left. Hmm. All right, Hamish. All right, that's that. Enough, enough Tesla. You've got to stop me, otherwise I'll keep going. <laughs> no, let's uh, let's talk about uh, we've got some Australian inflation data. Um, so uh, you might remember that uh, data. Sorry, data, <laughs> data. No, I'm not changing that. It's data. Um, <laughs> you might remember that uh, last month Australia had a very very hot inflation figure, which was uh, 8.4% was the annual figure, uh, which was uh, the highest that's been recorded during this crisis. Uh, this month, or, or I should say, for the 12 months ending January, uh, the annual CPI came in at 7.4%. So it's cooled a little bit, uh, although mm. still the uh, still the second highest uh, during this uh, during this crisis so it's a little bit of a little bit of a calling but um, but uh, it's still very hot uh, the biggest contributors were uh, housing is up 9.8 percent year over year and within that you have uh, new dwellings uh, which is up 0.5 percent month over month so pretty considerable increase uh, and rent which was up 0.7 percent month over month uh, rent is uh had somewhat of a delayed uh, increase uh, compared to the the increase in uh, housing costs uh, or, or the price of new houses, and that's uh, really uh, as a result of uh, the in- the recent increases in in mortgage rates in Australia now being kind of passed through to renters. And uh, there was an analysis done by the Guardian that detailed some of the worst rental increases in Australia, and some of these are crazy. So you have uh, yeah. Uh, on the list, we've got at the top uh, a, a suburb in uh, WA, uh, Katanning. Uh, I'm going to pronounce some of these. Katanning? Wrong. I don't Kat- know. Katanning? I, I don't know. But anyway. the annual increase was 47%, <laughs> which I don't even know Whoa. how that's. Is that How's that even legal? Like, uh, how's that legal to increase rent? <laughs> how's that even legal? Like, that seems crazy to be able to increase rent that much. Um, but there you go. Capitalism. That- 
the, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, South Australia, Port uh, Broughton, or Broughton uh, was up 43%. And then you have a bunch. Yeah, um, Gaddon in Queensland, up 41%. Elliott Heads in Queensland, up 41% annually. So, yeah, there's some suburbs that have undergone some massive increases uh, in, in wow. rent, which is, um, which is unfortunate, but is, you know, to be expected given uh, – the the m- massive amount that mortgage rates have gone up uh, over the last year or so. What the what is going on in Stanwell Park? Thirty nine percent increase, nine hundred and ten dollars. Is that a week? Uh surely that must surely. be a week. Yeah, it must be a week. Yeah, current median rent per week. Yeah, it's like three hundreds, four hundreds. Yeah, where is that? Six hundreds. Is that where? Where is Stanwell Park? Nine hundred and ten dollars a week to live in Stanwell Park. I don't. I have no idea where this is. Maybe it's like <laughs> next to Darling Harbour or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's but insane. that is ridiculous. That is crazy. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Holy smokes! Uh, I, don't know. I wonder what the current median is in Canberra. Where I am. I don't know. Anyway, that's not relevant yeah, to I'm anyone not. except me in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon's Shout suddenly out. like, how much am I paying in rent? Yeah, I might just call my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, shout, out in the, shout, shout out in the comments if you're, if you're from Canberra, but I don't, I don't think anybody... <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on. We had... Continue, uh, Hamish. <laughs> food and non-alcoholic beverages was up 8.2% year over year. And then uh, recreation and culture... Is a, is a category. Um, I don't know if they changed that name recently. I hadn't seen that before. Uh, is ten point was up ten point two percent, and that was primarily primarily driven by uh, holiday travel and accommodation, which is, has risen seventeen point eight percent year over year. So, yeah, it's still uh, inflation is still considerably uh, strong uh, across the board, even though it's it's slowed a little bit uh, this year. So, unfortunately, that means that. Uh, Interest rate increases by the RBA are likely to continue, um, at least you know for the for the next month or so uh, until we get kind of more data. Uh, home prices, we also got data for um, core. Now I'm just hearing data in my head. <laughs> it's you got data, in my head. Data, 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 data. <laughs> um, from Core Logic, um, we got uh, we we got, kind of got the the latest month uh, nationally. Uh, the home prices declined seven point two percent year over year. Uh, which is the biggest decline since 2019. The three-month decline is 3.2%, and that's the fastest decline that CoreLogic has on their record. So um, that's you know quite a considerable pace of uh, decline in home prices in the last three months. And the worst markets, as you would expect from top to bottom, are Sydney down 13.8%, Melbourne down 9.3%, and Hobart down 9.5%. So mm. there you go. There you go. Um Interesting. More of yeah, more of the same uh, data that we would um, that that we've been seeing for the last you know many yeah. months. So um, home prices going down, 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 down. Mm. It, Hopefully, we can buy something. Well, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes <soon. laughs> Yeah, so sorry to everyone who owns a home, but uh, hopefully, yeah, half the people. Hopefully, it goes uh, down. <laughs> most of the people want it to go up. We, on the other hand, yeah, depends on your position. <laughs> just I want guess. to buy a house. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's all. The, that's all we want. I, I saw an interesting article from Westpac uh, uh, during the week um, with their forecast for what interest rates are going to do, and I, 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 I think I sent it to you during the week because it just to me it just seems so ridiculous. Westpac oh, is yeah, now forecasting. Yeah. Uh, seven rate cuts. Yes, that's not rate hikes. Seven rate cuts in 2024 and 2025. 
So they actually expect the current 3.35% rate to increase to 4.1% this year and then peak in May, so in a few couple of months, and then just decline to 2.35%. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was uh, a pretty wild uh, a pro- <laughs> projection. Uh, it, 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 Whatever crystal ball they're using, can I have a go? Yeah, I, I, it, to me, that just seems uh, very strange to, to make that argument, especially when you look at the US, for example, where the inflation rate has been coming down for a while, but they're being very persistent on continuing to do rate hikes or at least not doing any cuts to mm. ensure that we don't have a second wave of inflation. And I would imagine that uh, Philip Lowe at, uh, at the RBA is watching uh, Jerome Powell very closely because his speeches mm. sound the exact same. So I imagine he's just copying yeah. whatever whatever Jerome does. Uh, it seems mm. like a, the Australian RBA will, will be doing a similar thing. But who knows? We, we never really know what's going to happen, but it's just a wild uh, kind of prediction that I saw um, that they're already planning for us to go back to kind of rock bottom interest rates, uh, which um, rather than mm. just staying in a normal credit environment, because where we're heading right now is really just where interest rates have been historically in Australia. So um, how do... The- I don't know, like, who comes up with it? Like, who, what meeting where there's like 10 people in a room and they're trying, what, what are our, what are our estimates for the future? Or oh, I reckon it's going to go up a bit and then <laughs> 2024, 2025, it's going to be like seven rate cuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's just go with that. It's like, <laughs> inflation's like, like, what is it? What did you say it was? It's 7.4%. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, rate. I'm like, what? And just like, I don't know, the, the people that sit there and like, yeah, we know, we know. We're, we're predicting that this is definitely going to how, how can you, how? I don't get it. Yeah. And not even the Fed can predict this stuff. Like they, they get they predict things and then they're like, oh, sorry. I mean, we're pulling the levers here and we got it wrong. It's like- so silly. Yeah, it is It is kind of ridiculous. Um, ay, ay, ay. But you can't stop them. You can't stop a bank from make, trying to make a prediction. They will. I wish macroeconomic predictions were illegal. <laughs> or you had to, I wish you had, he copped like a fine. They had to like stake something. So they got to... <laughs> they got to yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, your business be plan great. better match this macroeconomic plan or else... <laughs> <laughs> if you get it wrong, you lose like 100 grand or something. Yeah. A million bucks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be funny as. Um, yeah. Anyway. All right. Um, how are we, we on for have time? Been going for fifty minutes, so we got about ten minutes to go. Um, um, what should we talk about? I next. I, I've got a. Th- there was a bit of a superannuation change. I won't. Um, I, I won't Don't spend, harp on about it. I won't spend. I won't harp on about. It. I won't spend too much time on it. But um, Thank I'll give. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the headlines <laughs> of, of what the change is because it is okay. a bit of a confusing change. Um, so and, and so I, for those that don't know what's what superannuation is, it's like our retirement um, account. So, what yeah. is it like? Ten percent of our income gets forcibly removed, mm. forcibly taken away from us, and yeah. it gets chucked into a super fund, uh, and it gets invested in real estate yeah. and shares and that kind of stuff. It's like forced yeah. investment for your retirement, and you can only access that money in your retirement. But yeah. I, like I was talking to a guy from uh, France. And like, I kind of thought that some sort of superannuation system, whether it gets called something different, I kind of thought that, that happened everywhere. Um, but apparently, in France, it's just that doesn't happen. It's like you hit the you hit the retirement age, and then you get the French um, age pension. 
Right. And and that, apparently that's why um, Macron has lost so much popularity recently is because he's tinkering with the age pension. Ah. And that's like all that the French people have mm. um, when they get to retirement. So actually tinkering with that really does affect them. Yeah. Well, so, anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, Australia. <laughs> Sidetracked. Oh, well, Australia is kind of um, at least unique to like say the US in that where we kind of force – Australians to participate in it to, to, to some extent, whereas, you know, in the US, they have tax yep. advantaged accounts <laughs> as well, um, like the Roth IRA mm. and, and the 401k, but it's not uh, a requirement that they participate right. in it. Right, okay. Um, whereas, yeah, as you said, we, that. we kind of have our our, um, our, our system where it, it's it's done to a certain extent and then we can contribute more if we want. But uh, yeah, there was mm. a bit of a bit of confusion around this change because it wasn't explained very well and it took me a while to fully understand what it was. But essentially the change mm. is uh, an increase in the superannuation's earnings tax for accounts over $3 million. So this is a tax on superannuation earnings, not contributions. So contribution uh, on the way in, uh, you pay... Uh, a, a smaller uh, uh, tax rate than your um, than your personal tax rate if it's if it's a salary sacrifice or or a, a, an employer contribution, and mm. then uh, on the way out, most accounts won't uh, experience any tax, but some accounts over certain levels will have a, a tax rate, and it's on those earnings that um, these taxes apply. Uh, so uh, essentially, uh, currently. Uh, there's no earnings tax on superannuation accounts below 1.9 million, and then any earnings on accounts above 1.9 million get taxed at 15%. So obviously your super mm-hmm. account is still invested, so it's still going to be producing income from shares and property and that sort of thing. Uh, and any earnings for your account balance over 1.9 million get taxed at 15%. That's what already exists. The proposed change uh, would essentially add another tax bracket, so to speak, whereby uh, the 15% tax on earnings still exists above 1.9 million, but once your account goes over 3 million, any earnings above that is taxed at 30%. And that's really the, right. the change. Okay. So it doesn't affect your contributions at all. You can still contribute. Most people will be contributing at a 15% tax rate uh, unless you earn yes. over, I think, 250,000, then those con- contributions above that is at 30%. Uh, but that that yep. is completely unchanged. This is really about people at the retirement stage drawing on their account uh, and, and the earnings that your account actually generates. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the that's the change, and it doesn't actually go into place um, for two years. Uh, so, it's after the right. next after the next election. Um, and the reason they did that is because at the this election they promised that uh, they wouldn't make any changes to superannuation. So their uh, way of getting a, of still you know staying with that promise is by saying, "Well, you get to vote vote you know for us or against us." And if you vote for liberals, they'll scrap this, obviously. Uh, but if you vote for us, we'll mm. put it in place. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And the only other point I wanted to mention is they currently have no plan to index it to inflation, which is uh, a big problem with a lot of um, taxes around. Around the world is if it's not inflation indexed, then you know three million dollars is a massive nest egg today. But for our generation, 30, 40 years down the road, three million dollars is going to be a lot less. And if that is still the bar for which this higher tax rate takes place, uh, we will be, uh, or a larger percentage of our uh, generation would be affected by that than than, than currently, mm. where it's 0.5 percent of accounts is currently affected by this. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, super's not something I think about all that much, to be honest. 
No, I really should. It's, nice. it's good to. It is good for the vast majority. It's good to think about it when you're younger. Get yourself set up. Know what you're doing. Um, I guess my mind is just in other areas of in- investment. But yeah, yeah. For I- most people in Australia, super is just super super smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the tax benefits for most people uh, and just being able to really invest your money in a diversified basket of not just stocks but assets. Uh, yep. Is incredibly valuable. Yeah, the, the tax benefits of doing that, especially if it's building for retirement, it cannot really be understated. So, um, yeah, there you I go. need to sneeze, but it's right on the edge. <laughs> Come on, mate. <laughs> no, I've lost it. Sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll give you a question. I'm be on so the edge. You don't sneeze. All right. Uh, sure. Are you guys going to the Formula One Grand Grand Prix in Melbourne? Which team driver do you support? I saw Brandon with a Red Bull hoodie in McLaren colours. Uh, was that because yeah, of Daniel Ricciardo? That's uh, because of Max, 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 Super Max. Yes, we are. <laughs> We're both going to the Grand Prix. We are. Yeah, exciting. Yeah, that's gonna be is good. going to be so cool. Yeah. So if you if you're going to be in Melbourne, or uh, at the end of March or the start of April, th- and you're going to be at the Grand Prix, and you see us there amongst the hundred and yep. however yeah. many other <laughs> thousand people that are there, definitely come and say hi. <laughs> if you fit in this very narrow niche of <laughs> Formula yeah. One and young investors fans, then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, going to be over over the far side of the track. Um, well, I'll be driving uh, near the weight, so, but you'll near you'll the be weight over stand. There. Yeah. Oh, you're oh you're going to be driving. Yeah. Oh, you're the new Australian rookie that's coming in this that's, year. That's that's exactly right. Oh, who, no, who who is that? <laughs> who's who's new? I don't I don't I haven't been keeping up. Oscar Piastri. That's right. He he won. Yeah. He, he's been he's been very good, right? Yeah. He, he came into F three. Sorry, we're totally going off of investing <laughs> now. Um, <laughs> if you're into investing, we'll just see you guys next week. Um, but yeah, um, no, he came into F three. He won. Then yeah. the next year he got the promotion into F two, mm. and he won. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then he spent a year being the reserve driver for Alpine, and now he's in the McLaren, replacing Daniel Ricciardo. I'm so sad. Yes. But no, I don't really. I'm I'm a neutral, honestly. Like I'll go for the Australians. Why not? Um, Danny Rick and and I'll go for Oscar this year. Hope he has a good season. But realistically, um, I I I thought that the end of the 2021 season was crazy. Um, I wanted to see what Max could do. I don't actually agree with how it ended, although I was going for Max in that season. Um, so yeah, I do have a Max Verstappen hoodie, and that's he's Dutch, so that's why it's orange. But it is a Red Bull Racing T-shirt. But I, I am mm. a neutral. Like this year, I would love to see someone like a Charles Leclerc or you know. Someone did, or even Lewis Hamilton again win the title. Although I don't think that's very likely. I think no. we're going to be seeing a Red Bull and Max Verstappen three peat, but we'll see. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm the same as you. I, I like following the Aussies, and I, I, I do like Red Bull. Um, I think that's more just because I like the business, and I wish I could invest. Yeah, in like, and, uh, <laughs> that's off the table. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I like Red Bull's branding and the way they go about their marketing, mm. and I think it's really interesting. Um, their strategy is very unique to a lot of other businesses. So, um, but yeah, that, that's another podcast. We we don't have time to get into yeah. that. Um, uh, sh- should we do one more? We'll do one more. Yeah, we'll um, I'll ask you this one. In a previous podcast, you've mentioned how great Phil Town's rule number one is for teaching value investing principles. You also mentioned that now you primarily f- primarily focus on the first half of the book while somewhat disregarding the second half. In the second half, he talks about the tools or the charts such as MACD, moving average, stochastics, etc. Um, could you explain why, why you don't place much value on that section of the book, especially when it comes to those charts? Yeah, I mean, this one's pretty simple for me. I like Phil Town stuff as an introduction to uh, Warren Buffett's value investing principles. 
Uh, but that's exactly what it is for me. It's, it's been an introduction to Warren Buffett's value investing principles. So that's where I, I went after looking at Phil Town stuff. And um, there's absolutely yep. nothing that, that Buffett has said, as far as I've read, uh, which is a fair bit of his stuff, uh, that is about using technical analysis in combination with value investing, which is you know what Phil Town talks about. So I don't do it. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's really all it is. Um, Love Phil Town stuff. He breaks down some of the complex Buffett principles into easy to understand steps very well. But um, you know, if I'm if I'm stacking them up next to each other, whose principles overrules whose? It I, I go to the I go to the source, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fair enough. I actually think if you asked <clears throat> Phil if he had his time again, how would he write rule one? Rule one. I don't think he would include that part of the book anymore. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't think he would. I think he's definitely changed. And he talks about this in like payback time and, and more recently. If you just see a stock that hits a margin of safety, just buy it. I mean, it was understandable why he included that in the first book, because he was very much talking about in a ta- in the Roth IRA, which is like the tax-free, you can jump in and out of stocks as much as you like, and there's no like taxable events. Mm. So sure, like- go like go for it but that still is so involved and it's trading and it's just not quite warren buffett style you can yeah. understand his reasoning but i think if he had to write his book again he would actually not even mention those indicators anymore um uh what else was i gonna say on that uh nothing really i don't use them anymore i never really used them no. like i looked at them but i never really used them i think it's better if it just if the stock hits your margin of safety just buy it and don't I wouldn't buy 100% of my position as soon as it hits margin of safety, but I'd invest some. And then if you come back a month later and it's cheaper, then just invest more, you know, yeah. stockpile. That's what he called it, stockpiling. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what he spoke about in, in payback time, um, which is much more, you know, Charlie Munger's approach, which is if it gets cheap, buy it. If it's not cheap, hold it. And then on and on yeah. and on. Um, yep. So yeah, yeah cool. um, we'll leave nice. it there for today, guys. Thanks for tuning in and spending a little bit of uh, your uh, week with us uh, here on uh, with this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week. And as always, if you have any questions, we'll try and get to. We've got actually got a bunch of a bit of a backlog, so. But Mm -hmm. uh, we still enjoy uh, getting new and different questions coming in. So if you have any, head over to the YouTube version of the podcast and uh, just leave your questions uh, as comments on the latest episode. Or if you're on Spotify, you can just kind of scroll up uh, or scroll down below. And there's a section where you can ask your questions on directly within Spotify. Uh, But with that said, thanks to ShareSite for sponsoring. As always, ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. Go try out a free account and you can track up to 10 holdings for as long as you want. So go check it out if you haven't already. And thanks, Brandon, for joining me as always, and we'll be back next week. So have a good weekend, guys. See you later. See you later.